Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Mike Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 343rd edition of Talk Dan Tuesday. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. This morning, our lead story is about coding cannabis. That's right. It's the coding of medicinal marijuana. It's a huge issue because medical marijuana allows chronically ill patients to relieve their pain rather than taking pills that many patients claim don't help. It's a complicated situation and dispensing, pardon the pun, dispensing our lead story this morning is nationally recognized professional physician coder Terry Fletcher. Also on today's broadcast, we're going to be reporting on physician burnout. We'll look at burnout from two physicians. We'll hear from internist and physician advisor Dr. Michael Salvatore and also from the psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Muffick. Burnout's back in the news again. Two recent studies about burnout indicate just how alarming this situation really is. And you have a talkback segment today. I do. I'm excited to share a new program with you and our audience. Well, we look forward to hearing what you're going to be reporting. We have much news to report during this broadcast, and we begin with Dr. Larry Field. He's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University inviting you to visit the new ICD-10 Monitor webcast subscription portal. Use the link in the handout tab in today's program or visit the ICD University web store. Here now is Dr. Larry Field. Good morning, everybody. Now, being a physician advisor for a long period of time, um, sometimes you need to go back to basics and reread material and how things are done. And I came across something that was actually published earlier on in March, and I missed it. And it had to do with uh, the acute care hospital inpatient prospective payment system and how the payment rates were actually calculated. And going back through there, you can realize, man, this is a complicated way to actually pay all of us. But for what we do as a physician advisor and a lot of the things that we touch, um, go end up in the uh, case mix index. Obviously, CDI uh, helps with that. And you can see how, if you go through what's posted in the um, um, documentation box, the item I'm referencing is all there. And on page six, you can see how difficult it is and intricate to come up with a way um, to pay hospitals based on DRG. <clears throat> Even me, uh, again, doing this for a period of time, going back and have to sort of relearn it from time to time, and it was a good refresher for me, so I thought I'd share it back with the audience today. With that, uh, I don't really have much more to offer today except for my yogiism for the day, and that is a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dr. Field, very much. That was Dr. Larry Field. Dr. Field is a treasurer of the American College of Physicians Advisors. By the way, uh, that handout that he's talking about is in the handout tab up there in your broadcast council. It's Tuesday. It's October the 9th, 2018, and you're listening to the 343rd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association, AHIMA. 
mix-and-match classification systems to create your own one- to four-day training schedule with the Hemus Crack the Codes Advanced Coding Workshop. Advance and grow your coding power in ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, or CPT by walking through actual redacted patient health records with an AHEMA coding expert. Encourage greater efficiency within your team. Raise the standard of healthcare information quality and assist your organization in meeting industry requirements during AHEMA's highly rated advanced coding workshop. Don't miss this event starting December 6th in Las Vegas. Visit ahima.org slash events to learn more and to register. Thanks, Clark Anthony. Today we're reporting on physician burnout. There are two recent studies on burnout, and both reveal the epidemic-like crisis that really is burnout. So, two reports and two perspectives on burnout. Our first report is from physician advisor Dr. Michael Salvador, and then later we're going to hear from psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. First, here is Dr. Michael Salvador. Good morning, Dr. Salvador. Welcome to the program. Well, good morning. Uh, I sort of labored over what I should talk about today since I can't talk about the psychiatric aspects. There's a psychiatrist to do that. So while I was thinking about how should I approach this, my wife and I were watching television the other night and a show that was situated in the 1960s where a very sympathetic young person died in a hospital bed of sepsis. And my wife looked at me and says, isn't there anything else could be done? And all of a sudden, 16 things popped into my head. And I should say I, I practiced critical care for 35 years. I immediately said to her, uh, we, they should transfer to an ICU, but there was no ICU then. We should put vasopressors to increase their blood pressure, but they didn't have vasopressors then. We should volume resuscitate her. We have more antibiotics to choose from. We should intubate her and put her on a ventilator. We should give her corticosteroids. We need GI bleeding prophylaxis, DVT prophylaxis, nutritional supplementation, telemetry. We have to worry about nosocomial infections. We need, we need to think about perhaps renal ultrafiltration, dialysis, maybe even extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And my wife just stared at me and said, did you do all that? And I said, yeah. I said, we did it all the time. And then as I reflected on it, I thought, wow. You know, there's a lot goes on with that because I think what happens to people is the problem, physicians, it's a problem of chronic stress. So when somebody pulls a knife on me, bam, my cortisol goes up, epinephrine goes up, and I'm running away. But when that happens to me day in and day out, it has very deleterious, I think, physical and psychiatric effects. And I think what goes along with all these procedures and the risk you have to worry about and maintaining them and the worry is then you have to document it. Uh, You have to worry about that you you don't violate HIPAA when you're talking to to colleagues. You have to worry about the mistakes you may make or the mistakes the nurses may make. Uh, In the 1960s, they didn't have beepers. They didn't have cell phones. Most of them, you know, and there was very few people who did night call because there wasn't that much going on at night. And then you combine it with doctors who don't get much sleep, and it's a real recipe for disaster for most people. And also, I think what's also happened over the t- over time is that, you know, when a doctor's stressed, you know, first of all, their brainstem explodes and their autonomic nervous system goes nuts. Then their limbic system, all their emotions go, gets turned on, and then their cortex gets scarred by all this. And what's also happened over time is 
you know, what, what mitigates stress is people have outlets for it. So if you stress a rat, if a rat can go gnaw on a piece of wood or go bite another rat, they have less problems with the stress. And also, just like low social status makes stress works, higher social status tends to dissolve that. And as doctors have become the seen as more mortals in society, all these things that used to mitigate the stress have really turned out to make it worse. And I think, and the other thing is, I think it's under-recognized also that not only physicians burn out, but our patients burn out. Uh, you know, veterans have the highest rate of suicide. Veterans with stage 4 lung cancer have the highest rate of suicide among veterans. And it's been shown and was published by the ATS recently that if you give people palliative care, these patients, they kill themselves less. You know, this is certainly a question of susceptibility. Some people are more susceptible than others. But it's a problem that I think affects all doctors, and it's a physical problem that leads to psychiatric ramifications. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. That was Dr. Michael Salvatore. Dr. Salvatore is a physician advisor at BB Healthcare in Lewis, Delaware. Chuck? Thank you, Erica. And Dr. Salvador, thank you very much. By the way, uh, Dr. Salvador is a member of the Rec Monitor Editorial Board, and he has written extensively on palliative care. And I encourage you all to read his articles on palliative care. It's on our website at recmonitor.com. We continue our reporting on physician burnout with nationally recognized psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Dr. Moffick, burnout is a subject you and I have reported on frequently. So from your perspective, what are some of the newer concepts regarding burnout that uh, we haven't addressed before? Yes, Chuck, I'll be glad to get to those, but you sure set up me to follow a tough act. Dr. Salvatore really was psychiatrically and psychologically acute, and I would deem him an honorary psychiatrist right now. Now, I think the only way to follow him is to start with this inspiring quote from Dr. Kubler-Ross, that pioneer of understanding the stages of grief. To quote, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known a struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep caring concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. End of quotes. Her view has actually been confirmed recently by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Physicians, conveying that the personal experiences of mental distress can actually help physicians to add value and impact quality of care positively via increased empathy, insight, and an understanding of patients. Wouldn't you want your own burning out physician to come out like this? Unfortunately, the paradox is that our most compassionate physicians seem to be the most susceptible to burning out which may even occur more than once. Regardless, can the over 50% of physicians and other healthcare professionals come out better than they were even before the burnout? We do have some recent hints that this is a possible and worthy goal. It seems that the major cause of burnout is the disempowerment of those who know they can be better healers if not for external obstacles. This is a unique kind of stress to add to all the other stressors that Dr. Salvatore mentioned. Fortunately, some systems are realizing that it is too costly not to reduce burnout and that there are cost-effective ways to help clinicians, such as scribes to do much of the electronic health records 
Not only that, but there are connectors in large systems that, if identified, can help be helpful liaisons between caregivers and administrators, the administrators who are the key to preventing and reducing burnout, including for themselves. In the meanwhile, there are also things that we caregivers can do for ourselves. For the first time in about a decade, Medscape reported a significant drop in the burnout rate of a few medical specialties, especially emergency medicine physicians. The explanation for the drop may be that the 30 years that they have organizationally worked on wellness may be bearing fruit finally. They have annual meetings that focus on burnout, a wellness section, and a wellness week. Here the prize also goes to the tortoise, not the hare, in the race to be well. Another advance is the recognition that due to personal denial and blindness, colleagues are often better at recognizing one's burnout. The key is to have a system of trust and mutual concern, which is indeed a physician ethical principle. Lastly, we are better understanding how feelings of awe can be an antidote to frustration. Can we recall the awe we first felt when our ideals were met in clearly helping patients recover from illness, especially life-threatening illness? What a privilege. Or even though the burnout rate is high among hospice and palliative care physicians, that you help someone die peacefully, or that you found a significant hidden error in coding. We probably still have many such moments, but take them for granted. Watch for them, not only at work, but also in your personal life. Collect them, remember them, and recall them. They are precious. And you know what? I'm feeling better just talking about them. Back to Erica now. Thanks, Dr. Moffick. That was nationally renowned psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you very much, Dr. Moffick. And you can read my interview with Dr. Moffick in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. This morning, our lead story is about coding cannabis. That's right, it's the coding of medicinal marijuana. It's a huge issue because medical marijuana allows chronically ill patients to relieve their pain rather than taking pills that many patients claim don't really help them at all. It's a complicated situation, especially since 37 states now allow the selling of marijuana. Here now to report our lead story is nationally recognized professional physician coder, Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. Yes, medical marijuana or cannabis, as it is commonly referred to in the healthcare field, is allowing chronically ill patients to relieve painful, often debilitating symptoms legally instead of taking pills. Many claim do little to ease that severe pain. The widespread acceptance of marijuana as a useful medication is also creating a unique medical practice niche for some physicians who only perform assessments on patients seeking medical marijuana certification. Because many doctors remain apprehensive about the issue, I thought I'd shed some light on the realities of coding and reimbursement for the physician practice. So physicians working in these new and extremely lucrative niche practices are bound by a legality involving the development of what each state considers a bona fide physician-patient relationship for patients seeking medical marijuana prescriptions. What that means is that most prescriptions and orders for treatment are only approved for payment by the payer if first it is prescribed by the patient's regular physician, and second, if, if it is medically necessary to cure or relieve the effects of the condition, and third, if it's legal. That also means that medical marijuana clinics could find themselves in possible trouble if they begin distributing marijuana to patients at their first visits. With today's ambiguity between state laws and federal regulations, medical practices have to jump through hoops to even determine where the proper intersection is for med legal compliance. So where does ICD-10 and CPT fit into this jigsaw puzzle? There's a critical lack of guidance 
when trying to get reimbursement for medical marijuana claims. The industry is in a haze because there are so many questions and not enough answers when it comes to established claim guidance or regu- and re- regulations for coding and reimbursement. So what, what do claims and quote coding professionals do when they encounter a medical bill for cannabis? So the actual, there is actually an answer to this question because the F- Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, still classifies medical marijuana as a Schedule I drug. The FDA has not approved marijuana as a safe and effective drug for any indication. Its classification as a Schedule I drug under the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 indicates that marijuana is, has a high potential for abuse and does not currently have an acceptable medical use and has a lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision. In states where medical marijuana has been legalized, the states specify uh, qualifying conditions for which marijuana can be described, although although those conditions for prescribing medical marijuana differ from state to state, there are also a lot of similarities. In states where medical marijuana and conditions such as pain, used for conditions such as pain, spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury, muscle spasms, post-traumatic stress syndrome, and more can be seen in such cases. Some states even have other chronic or persistent medical conditions approved for prescriptions, but then this can lead to physicians prescribing for nonspecific diagnoses. And again, the patient does have to hold a certification card, and physicians have to be careful and ask their malpractice insurance if cannabis or any form of medical marijuana is covered under their policies because it's a federally illegal drug. Even cancer, where many providers feel marijuana is effective in stimulating appetite and also um, for people experiencing or undergoing cancer treatments such as chemotherapy or radiation, it can be for pain relief, but this has ambiguity as well as an improved treatment. Insurers have stated that nonspecific diagnosis codes for ICD-10 also have been a problem when submitting medical claims, such as M79.604, pain in right lower limb not otherwise specified, or G89.21, chronic pain due to trauma, M54.5, lower back pain. When there's only pain as a diagnosis on the bill or the claim, most payers are requesting additional codes to isolate the injury or the condition. In 2019, effective October 1st, ICD-10, Chapter 5, Category 12, also added two new codes for identifying withdrawals associated with cannabis use. The chapter is defined as excessive use of marijuana with associated psychological symptoms and impairment in social or occupational functioning, and that's the F12.23 or Port 93 codes. But note, these are not codes to allow for treatment and use of marijuana to treat the patient, but only abuse and adverse effect of drug withdrawal. So I find this an interesting addition to the ICD-10 coding system since it was recently reported by New York State Health Department that cannabis use was non-habit forming and an alternative treatment to opioid addiction. So as you can see, the conflicts that not only cross paths from a coding perspective, but also a clinical perspective are numerous. One thing is clear. Raising this topic has shown that the current state of claim payments for medical marijuana has yet to be really defined. So what is the answer? It's really a multi-step process that needs to take place to get any kind of established protocol. First, the main step in moving forward with acceptance would be obtaining FDA approval and movement from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 2 or 3 drug. Once acceptance is given at that level, classifications that accurately identify the drug then must be established. The big distinction between Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 substances instead is whether the federal government thinks a drug has medical value. The DEA says Schedule 2 substances have some medical value and Schedule 1 substances do not. So the latter receive more regulatory scrutiny even though they may not be more dangerous. It may be helpful to think of a scheduling system as made up of two distinct groups, non-medical and medical. 
The non-medical group is the Schedule I drugs, which are considered to have no medical value and high potential for abuse. The medical group is the Schedule II to V drugs, which have some medical value and are numerically ranked based on the potential uh, abuse from high to low. The schedule is not something the president could even change alone, but the administration, through the Attorney General or Secretary of Health and Human Services, can begin a review process for the current schedule, which I believe needs to be done as soon as possible. And finally, once medical marijuana is subclassified, the difficult work of creating protocols and acceptance of this treatment in mainstream medical practices for all, for all conditions, like cancer, begins, or will it begin? We'll see. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Terry. That was nationally recognized professional physician coding authority, Terry Fletcher. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thanks very much, Terry. And you can read Terry's excellent article on medicinal marijuana coding in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitoring News. At the top of the broadcast, Erica, you mentioned that you had a new program that you wanted to talk about, which brings us to our very popular segment called TalkBack. Once again, here's Dr. Erica Rimmer. Chuck and listeners, for today's TalkBack, I want to share with you a new activity which I've been doing with a client, which I think is awesome. In my consulting, I find organizations very keen on having me educate the providers, which I agree is crucial. But it is my opinion that ensuring that the CDI staff and coders are knowledgeable and up-to-date is just as, if not more, important. The personnel who perform the CDI role, be it CDSs or coders, are the ones who sustain the behavior change which I hopefully jumpstart by teaching physicians optimal documentation practices. It is imperative to ensure that your CDI staff are generating worthy and compliant queries. To this end, I recommend placing a competent, intelligent CDIS in the role of CDI analyst with one of the key tasks being query quality assurance. Any of you who have heard me before know that I always believe that continuous feedback and dissemination of common themes is best practice. Many organizations can't afford to send their CDSs to national or regional conferences, but having ongoing education is vital to a program. To this end, as our analyst finds query composition or recurring topics that bring up important teaching points, we share them with the group so everyone can learn from everyone else's opportunity. The program we have instituted is as follows, and I must comment that the reason it is working so well is that the team I am working with is fantastic. We're doing it on a weekly basis for a half hour at a time. The format is a conference call of all the CDSs with screen sharing. The analyst finds usually two cases, often linked by a common theme. For instance, one week she found opportunity in cephalopathy queries. Another week we discussed the Glasgow Coma Scale. Another week she found several shock cases to review. Sometimes we talk about coding updates and important coding clinic opinions. The moderator prepares a short slide deck, usually no more than 12 slides for the entire 30-minute session. She summarizes the clinical scenario in a few sentences and presents the query. There is often a chance to educate on both query structure and content, to improve queries, and then on to clinical points. My role is to interject and add details. I provide a clinician's perspective and also give input from my ICD-10 and coding expertise. I don't prepare a formal presentation. The discussion triggers my additions to the dialogue. We leave time for questions at the end, 
and we try to strictly stick to the half-hour time frame. The feedback from the participants has been overwhelmingly positive. They feel like they are being nurtured and think the sessions are extremely helpful. They comment that the information is not too much to absorb and that they feel they are professionally growing. This model can be adapted in your organizations too. Even if you don't have an analyst, your group can teach each other. If you don't have a quality assurance process, I bet that clinician complaints about queries, what are you asking me? This is a stupid query, can expose opportunity. You could combine CEDASs and coders into the same conference so everyone is on the same page. You should have a physician advisor participate. The service could be provided by a vendor if you don't have a physician advisor. Build it into your contract. I know I would be happy to help you if your team doesn't have any alternative. I think it is one of the most intellectually challenging and fun activities I do. If you have a process similar to this one or have comments, please shoot Chuck an email at cbuck at medlearnmedia.com. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Erica. Very, very enlightening conversation. Now is the time for the uh, Tuesday Q&A, and we have a question from George. George, thank you for being such an active listener. And I want to direct this question to both Dr. Moffick and Dr. Salvador. And the question for George is, in dealing with physician practices, we listen to them talk about physician burnout and stress. The biggest impact to their practices centers on regulatory mandates, says George. This is literally killing practices. What would your advice be or guidance to a health plan where we can help? Michael? This is kind of like death by a thousand cuts. You can throw regulations in with like the EMR. That is, we didn't have time to go into this, but things keep getting piled on doctors that add to the stress in their life. And, and, and if you want to start a brawl in my hospital, just mention you're going, to put, you're going to put another pop-up in electronic medical record. That is, you know, it, very much. And I think what it gets down to is two things for doctors. One, loss of control of their activities. And two, they can't expect, put a good expectation how their day is going to go because more and more of this stuff piles up. And worse yet, it's being done anonymously, so there's nobody to go confront and say, why are you doing this to me? Dr. Moffick, uh, to George's question, uh, what advice would you offer to health plans to somewhat mitigate the uh, regulatory mandates they encounter? We can't on the clinical level and even the workplace level, we can't get rid of these, right? I mean, that's at much higher levels. So as Dr. Salvatore mentioned, this loss of control and what I tried to term disempowerment, that you can deal with somewhat. In other words, you know, we're in this together to kind of address this, these obstacles of regulations, whatever they may be. So to try to support one another and find creative ways to deal with this situation rather than just moaning about them or getting angry about them. You know, there's different ways to skin a cat, and even if the regulations are onerous, you might be able to find kind of creative ways to deal with them in a way which isn't as stressful as it otherwise would be. Any reaction to what you just heard, uh, Dr. Salvador? I think Dr. Moffick summed it up perfectly. That is, you know, I think... Uh, and I think what's really sad about this is the fact that as doctors, 
you're really in a privileged position to do wonderful things for people and get tremendous feedback and 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 be be affirmed as a good caregiver. And yet, you know, many many doctors are saying they wouldn't recommend this career to other people. And I and I also think part of it is medicine is sort of trans, transferring gradually from a, an independent profession to a public service. But I don't think people are getting the support they need to make that transition. Thanks so much. That's going to be a wrap for our 343rd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And, Eric, I want to thank our panelists today, Dr. Larry Field, Dr. Michael Salvador, whom you just heard, Dr. H. Stephen Moffat, and, of course, Terry Fletcher. And remember, every day can be Tuesday when you listen to Talk 10 Tuesday on demand, anytime, anywhere. And it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Hope you're going to be with us next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Eric Reber and everybody here on Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.